What's up, Stitches? Hey, hi, hello, and welcome to So What, the podcast all about historical needlework and those who stitched it. Howdy from your hostess, Isabella Rosner. Today's episode is an interview with Michelle Major and Emma Cormack, two of the curators of the exhibition Threads of Power Lace from the Textile Museum St. Gallen, which is on display at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City until the 1st of January. Michelle and Emma curated the show with Alona Coase, the curator at the Textile Museum in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The show is the first major exhibition about lace in New York City in 40 years, which is, as I'm sure you can imagine, a massive deal. So it's very exciting to be talking to some of the exhibition's curators about making, curating, and wearing lace. But before we get into lace, we simply must chat social media. As you perhaps know, the So What podcast has lots of social media pages where you can see images of and links to things we talk about in each episode, including this one. Go to So What Podcast, that's S-E-W-W-H-A-T, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to see all of those links and images. Or go to our website at sowhatpodcast.com. Now, let's get into lace, shall we? So, the reason we are all here today is for the exhibition Threads of Power, Lace from the Textile Museum St. Gallen. According to the Bard Graduate Center website, this exhibition brings together approximately 175 examples of lace from the extensive collection at the Textile Museum St. Gallen, Switzerland, and is the first large-scale American installation in 10 years to trace the development of lace from its early 16th century origins to the present. The main themes of the exhibition include the introduction of early needle and bobbin laces around 1600 and their centers of production, primarily Italy and Flanders, lace as a luxury commodity that became a symbol of power and status for the clergy and men and women of the aristocracy for whom it was initially intended and produced, and there they look at the royal courts of Habsburg Spain and Bourbon France, sumptuary legislation, the establishment of the French lace industry under Louis XIV that rivaled those of Italy and Flanders, and the use of lace in the Spanish colonies. Other themes include the decline of the industry following the French Revolution, the rise of machine-made lace in the 19th century, and the resurgence of this textile, lace, as a status symbol for affluent women, lace collectors and collecting in the late 19th century, and lace revivals in Britain, continental Europe, and among Italian immigrants in New York City, and the importance of St. Gallen as a center of machine production from the turn of the 20th century to the present, and its recent inventive approaches that shape today's industry. The exhibition considers the dynamics of power, exploitation, class, and gender among those who made, sold, and wore this costly textile. And now you're like, okay, I know what this exhibition is about, but I'm sure you're like, what is the Bard Graduate Center? Where is this exhibition being held? What's going on? Right, yes. So the Bard Graduate Center, or BGC, is a graduate research institute in New York City on the Upper West Side, and they have MA and PhD degree programs, gallery exhibitions, research initiatives, and public programs that explore new ways of thinking about decorative arts, design history, and material culture. So if you are interested in needlework, and you obviously are because you're here, then the Bard Graduate Center is like heaven on earth. 
And now that we know what the exhibition is and where the exhibition is, we should probably talk about who did the exhibition, right? Yeah. So Emma Cormack is an associate curator at the Bard Graduate Center. Her research specialties include the history of fashion and consumer culture in late 19th and early 20th century France, with a particular interest in department stores and print advertising. She was the assistant curator on the recent Bard Graduate Center exhibition, French Fashion, Women and the First World War in 2019, and the curatorial and editorial assistant for Bard Graduate Center exhibition, Eileen Gray in 2020. Recent publications include a chapter entitled Collecting Art and Commerce with 19th Century Trade Cards in Perspective on a Legacy Collection, Sally Casey Thayer's Gift to the University of Kansas in 2020. Michelle Major is Professor Emerita at Bard Graduate Center, specializing in European and American fashion and textile history from the 18th through the 20th century. In 2012, she curated a focus gallery exhibition at Bard Graduate Center and contributed to and edited the accompanying catalog, Staging Fashion 1880-1920, Jane Hayding, Lily Elsie, Billy Burke. Recent publications include a chapter on the costume tailleur in the BGC exhibition catalog, French Fashion, Women, and the First World War from 2019, and a chapter on Giovanni Boldini and the French fashion periodical Le Mode in the exhibition catalog Boldini et la Moda from 2019. She is also a research associate at Cora Ginsburg LLC, a preeminent dealer of antique costume and textiles. And as a note, you'll hear the name Ginsburg come up quite a few times in this episode. That is what is being referred to. It's Cora Ginsburg, which is a preeminent dealer of antique costume and textiles. Yes. And now, before we get into the interview, there are a few things that are mentioned that you might need some more context for. So that includes Diana Vreeland, who Michelle mentions at the beginning of the interview, and she was the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, and later she became a special consultant to the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute, which is referred to in our chat as CI. You'll also hear Michelle and Emma mention somebody named Elena. This is Elena Kanegi Lauks, a lace-making legend who was on So What in season one and who is also a total icon. Her art is in the exhibition and we love to see it. Also mentioned is Kate Sekulis, who is an awesome clothing historian who lectures widely on the topic of mending and who published the book called Mend, a refashioning manual and manifesto in 2020. And one last person who is mentioned is Alexis Muha, who is BGC's Associate Director of Sales, Marketing, and Rights for Publication. She's mentioned when we talk about the book Twixt Art and Nature. And finally, bizarre silks, which Michelle mentions at the end of the episode, are silks made at the very end of the 17th century and into the early 18th century that are characterized by large asymmetrical patterns, vivid colors, and fantastical floral designs inspired by places like India and China. And I think that's all you need to know. So let's go. Emma and Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. I'm obsessed with your exhibition. I am hyped to get a peek into your brilliant minds. Thank you so much for having us. We're glad that you love the exhibition. Yeah. Thank you. Threads of Power fangirl over here. (laughs) How did you both come to research the decorative arts? And I guess before you answer, I should say that, Michelle, I know your specialty is 
I believe, 18th to 20th century fashion and textiles. Emma, I don't know what your specialty is in the field of decorative arts. I don't know if you have one, but I know that you are a very skilled sewist, thanks to the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> so, I'll, Michelle, go ahead. Do you want to talk about your origin story? Um, I guess my or my origin story is my mother, um, who was very chic, had beautiful clothes, and people always noticed what she wore. And uh, as I, you know, became a young adolescent, I too noticed what she wore. <laughs> um, and I used to help her get dressed in the evening for, you know, uh, with her like fancy, you know, evening gowns, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and uh, at college, I was a French literature major. And, um, and then sometime after college, <laughs> I was at loose ends. And one of my brother's friends, um, his, his granny was Diana Vreeland. <gasps> okay he said why don't you go work for diana at the costume institute okay yeah. okay so, on my way. I, I volunteered as a to work on one of the um exhibitions um and i think it was probably like 1986 or something five six something like that well no 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 it has to have been before that um Oh no, it was much, it was definitely before that. It was like 76. Sorry, I'm really showing my age here. Lots a decade. So 76 and then maybe again in like 78 or something. Um, and I thought, I really like this stuff. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I found out from the curator one at the, in the CI, um, not Gianna, but I'm Stella Blum that there was a program at NYU in, um, you could do an MA in costume studies. So that's what I did. Um, and from there I went and worked in the CI. For, so that's, that's my story. And now you're here. Iconic. <laughs> now I've been here for 28 years. Yeah. And now I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. Hello and goodbye. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that, I mean, my mother w w was somebody who was really interested in history and I guess what I then I came to realize, like, you can look at history through clothing. Mm -hmm. And it's a really mm -hmm. interesting kind of history. Mm -hmm. um, and I also really liked art history. And so and in classes that I teach here, I've I've assigned, you know, Balzac and Flaubert and, uh, you know, lots of 19th century French fiction and other kinds of fiction. So um, so it all came together in the end. I didn't I didn't. <laughs> it wasn't a waste that I did a, <laughs> a BA in French. Oh. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, what a journey. That's such a good one. Congratulations. And, and I still have some of my mother's clothes and wear them. Yeah, she wore a, a top last week. I oh, want a belt. A belt, yeah. Oh, wait. That's the dream. Oh, about the, the pants article. Oh, um, <laughs> the great story. <laughs> when I've taught 20th century um, and we were in the 60s, I put up a slide from the... Um, an image from the New York Times, uh, well, images that were um, part of an article associated, you know, printed with an article from the New York Times about the pantsuit. It was in 1967. Ooh. It's like the pantsuit. You know, is it going to survive? Oh my god! Um, yeah, <gasps> and, <it> survive. <laughs> and one of the photographs on the, was a photograph of my mother, like walking down, you know, Midtown in a YSL, ready to wear, you know, pret a porter pantsuit. And one of her friends called up and said, Timmy, said, did you know that there's a photograph of you in the New York Times? <laughs> so, of course, I, I still have that, that, you know, that clipping. And um, 
I show it in class. It's yeah. really funny. And it's, of course, it's all about like, you know, can, can women really get away with wearing pants? Like, what is this? You know? Oh my God. Well, congrats to your mom on basically making pantsuits survive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she did it single-handedly. Congratulations. Exactly. Well, there were other photographs, but she looked pretty good, I have to say. <laughs> I love that for you and for her. Wow. <laughs> Hey, yes, congrats. Emma, give me your, your story, your tale. Yeah, mine, I do not have a connection to Diana, but um, <laughs> yes. So I guess I've been interested in clothing for a very long time. My mom taught me to sew too when I was very young. Um, and then I also studied French literature in undergrad um, <laughs> alongside an art history degree and um, found that in my art history classes, I was writing essays about the objects in the paintings instead of um, the materiality of the paint, the paint and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, um, and in one semester in one of my literature courses, I read novels by Zola. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then I ended up at BGC um, taking classes with Michelle. Michelle was my thesis advisor. Um, I think I took every class you offered and audited the other ones. Um, research assistant, um, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. And so my specialty, I guess, generally is 19th and 20th century fashion focused primarily in France. But my real love is um, like the history of consumer culture and shopping. Yeah. So department stores, department stores are my, my true love. Um I had no idea, Emma, your interest in department stores, but I'm obsessed. Yes. Anytime you want to chat about department stores, anyone out in the void, chat <laughs> chat with me about department stores, please. Love to consume. This is a question, or I guess two questions, which are the reason why we're here today. The Threads of Power exhibition, which is so brilliant. So I want to know, how did that exhibition come about? Can you give us a summary of the exhibition? Tell me everything. I could not be more vague, but I just want to know. Yeah, that. Sure. yeah. <laughs> um, so the exhibition came about thanks to BGC's founder and director, Susan Weber. Mm. Um, she was in St. Gallen, I'd say five to seven years ago, maybe when they were preparing for their the first iteration of this show, which was called Lace and Status. Um, all about their historic lace collection. So she visited the museum um, with some colleagues that she was with and saw these lace objects out in the conservation area, saw them, you know, being prepared for the exhibition. And she said, we have to have these in New York. So she was struck first by the the objects themselves and their intricacy. And, you know, they're beautiful. If you, if you mm -hmm. come see in the gallery, they're completely beautiful. So um, I guess the, the origin story here is the objects themselves. Had the objects from St. Gallen ever been on display in America? Is this the first time that this collection is available for people in the U.S. to see? Yeah. Yes, this is their American debut. Oh my God! Fifty objects from their collection, never before seen. <laughs> That's massive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow! Congratulations. That's why we have every weekend lace makers crowded in with their, yeah. you know, pressed up to the plexiglass. Yeah. <laughs> they have to yeah. see all. I, think, I mean, more, more than one has said how impressive the collection is from the Texan Museum, and that it really does rival mm -hmm. what they have at the Met um, or the VNA. Or, or the VNA. Yeah. I mean, the objects I saw were so stunning and of a level I was not expecting. I don't know. I, I walked in with no expectations, but 
it did feel like a lot of the objects in that exhibition were like the natural counterparts to the lace objects in the Met, in the V&A, in all of the major textile collections around the world. Mm -hmm. One of the star pieces from the Textile Museum is very similar to one in the V&A. It's our big um, wedding coverlet from... 1649. 1649, yep. Um, I love it. And there was one in the V... They're not exactly the same, but there was one in the V&A that everyone thought was unique until this one popped up (gasps) for sale from a private... Whoa! It reminds me of one of the things I found most special about the exhibition. I mean, I loved it for many reasons, including the fact that I have never seen an exhibition of just lace. And I feel like I've never really seen lace in exhibitions generally. But more than that, I feel like it's very rare to have museum exhibitions that so comfortably exhibit anonymous makers, which is really important for me because with the study of textiles, most of those objects are anonymous. Many people just those objects because they're not tied to specific individuals. And I feel like that's a major problem because right. it you're just prioritizing the major, quote unquote, mm-hmm. major art forms again, if you have to platform specific people. So it was really nice to see all these objects that were on display and telling very clear, detailed stories, but aren't attached to individuals. I think mm-hmm. that's really important. So thank you for your work. Am I correct in thinking this is the first major lace exhibition in a really long time? Mm-hmm. Yes, in New York City. Yes, when... the most recent one was 1982 at the Cooper Hewitt. Oh my God. So a very that long time is. ago. I hope it's not another 40 years <laughs> until the next one. Same. Wow, that is so kind of crazy, especially considering that New York museums have a lot of major lace collections. Right, right. Mm-hmm. There was, um, there have been sort of smaller installations here and there in, mm-hmm. in the region too. Um, mm-hmm. Devin Thine, one of the Brooklyn Lace Guild members, um, she curated an ex- a small installation at the Met um, outside the Rati Center about their Ooh. collections of European lace. I can't remember what date. I don't remember either. Maybe 2014. Mm, okay. Um, but there hasn't been like a, you know, a whole history from origins to today lace exhibition for 40 years, That's which is wild. So, that is mind blowing, but speaks to not only the need, but how underappreciated these objects have been for so long. So thank you for changing the narrative because I feel like with textiles generally, but lace especially and embroidery, which is my own bias, people, when they know about these things, love them. They love lace. They love embroidery. It's just that they don't know what they don't know. They haven't been kind of put face to face with these sorts of objects before. And when they are, their their understanding of art changes completely. Yes, yeah. totally. And I think I think it was a bit the same when when BGC did a um a collaboration with with the Met, um, the 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 Trickstar Nature. I mean not only did all the you know embroidery freaks come out, um, but it, it drew in many, you know, people who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been looking at early textiles. And that was an, I mean, that was also an amazing show. I, an anecdote about this show. So we have the catalog on our website that you can download. I tell every single person I know about it. Yes. Alexa said there are like multiple, every week there are multiple people who download that book anew. Um, That's really, I didn't know that. Maybe they're all coming from you. (laughs) 
I think, well, so this is episode, you will be episode 71 of the SOA mm-hmm. podcast. I have talked about <laughs> art and nature and the free PDF catalog version of it in probably like a fifth to a fourth of these episodes. I am preaching the gospel of art and nature. <laughs> I'll tell in, Alexis, that's great. <laughs> like my whole life is that book. I call it the embroidery Bible. Like, yeah, for uh, everything, everything I do is for that book. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything I do is to just further the world's knowledge of the PDF. I think it speaks to the passion people have for textiles and how few opportunities textile fans have to actually engage with materials in museum settings. Right. Yeah. So thank you for doing the Lord's work. And I love seeing too, every time I have to go, so our offices are on the fifth floor of the gallery building. And every time I have to go out and get lunch or whatever, I walk down through the galleries and I like to sneak around and listen to what people are saying. And it's so nice to see that different groups of people like are chatting with each other about details of the objects because they walk in and they say wow oh my god I can't look at this and and somebody else overhears them and um it's really so nice yeah (laughs) that is so lovely and I also think speaks to the power of I don't want to keep harping on about this but like the power of anonymous makers Mm -hmm. because we we don't know who these people are there is a lot of room for imagination and storytelling and filling in the pieces and like filling in the gaps um and I feel like that, it means that people who enter the space together can actually create stories together mm-hmm. and exactly what you're saying, point out this and be like, whoa, look at that. Oh, who made that? When was that made? Like mm-hmm. create educated, like stories based on fact together, which I think is. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Thank and you. I think too, like for Leif specifically for me and for, I think a lot of other textile people, maybe I'm speaking too broadly but lace has always been sort of mysterious mm-hmm. in terms of its making mm-hmm. process so mm-hmm. once you learn how it's made and you like truly understand the skill and the time that went into these objects it's mind-blowing and it, so that i think it's like even when i walk down the stairs and through the galleries every time i look around it's like just mm-hmm. a, a, like mm-hmm the first time mm-hmm. again that it's mm-hmm. mind-blowing that somebody made mm-hmm. these with their hands mm-hmm. i love that and that they survived to 2022 yeah. and now they're yeah. like sitting downstairs just it's wild it is wild okay well so now i have to ask the question which i should have asked first which is can you give us <laughs> an overview of how the exhibition works like thematic time period how, what are you seeing in this exhibition sure thank to... you right. sure so the exhibition stretches from uh, European laces, 16th century origins to the present day. So we focus on two types of handmade lace in the exhibition, that is needle lace and bobbin lace. And on the first floor, you are introduced to these techniques with information about, detailed information about how the objects were made, because as non-lace makers, we fully believe that you can't appreciate the objects unless you truly understand how someone made them with their hands. Um, also on the first floor, we have, um, examples of early lace, um, and a small section about lace pattern books, um, this genre of, of pattern of book that, uh, emerged in the 1520s in Central Europe and how, how they, um, assisted in sort of spreading lace designs around Europe. Um, and then on the second floor, we move up into a small section about ecclesiastical lace, which with some of the 
star objects from the textile museum's collection, including a 12 foot long golden needle lace altar frontal. That is oh, the first thing you see when you walk up the stairs and I hear people like gasping <laughs> yeah, all day. Yeah, it's wonderful. They they really do. <laughs> and then two galleries, um, one that focuses on styles and lace worn in Habsburg, Spain, and one about styles and lace worn in Bourbon, France. And then on the third floor, we move up into the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries with a focus on the St. Gallen machine embroidery and lace industry in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, a discussion of the 19th century lace industry more broadly and the um, advent of lace machines. Um, and then the final gallery stretching today, again, with a focus on St. Gallen and the the production that is still centered there for chemical lace, high quality chemical lace. The star of our first floor is of course the contemporary commission by our wonderful lace making friend, Elena Kinagi-Lux. Yes, it's brilliant. It's the first thing you see when you the walk first in. Thing you see. Yeah. Awesome, loved it. It was amazing to see it in the flesh after seeing the photos and the videos, to see it face to face and even like a zoomed in high quality image on a website. Mm -hmm. There is a, I appreciate both because there is a level of detail that I'm not going to get on my phone screen when I'm watching a TikTok. Yes. yes, it's true. Right. And so it's yeah. on the wall. So you can really get up really close to that plexi. <laughs> Love it. Am I remembering correctly that there is a part of this exhibit at the BGC that was not present in the St. Gallen version of the show? And if so, what is it? And why was it included? That sounds so accusatory. I love it. I just want to know. I just want to know why more. did you do this? Do you want to? Yeah. Um, so the so the whole th th third floor is new. Oh wow! Um, okay. The exhibition. So the the the, the exhibition in St. Gallen ended in eighteen hundred. Oh. So so the inclusion of the nineteenth, twentieth, twentieth, and twenty first centuries is is BGC. Um. I'm so grateful for it because some of those objects are show-stopping. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. That's pretty typical for BGC because we don't, we're not a collecting institution. So we bring <laughs> exhibitions here a lot and we BGCify them, aka make them bigger and write a lot more text. <laughs> BGCify. I love it. Um, my other question is perhaps... A dumb one. I actually just don't know. I know that St. Gallen was and still is a center of lace production. How did the museum come to get all of these pieces of lace? Were they acquired in order to provide inspiration for more contemporary lace making or was something else going on? Sort of. So a lot of the objects um, are thanks to donations by a man named Leopold E. Clay who was a manufacturer in St. Gallen in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, he ran a firm called Ecle Frere, which um, had branches all over in St. Gallen, in London, in Berlin, New York, Paris. Um, so they were manufacturers of chemical lace and machine embroideries. Um, so he initially started collecting for sort of his own interest, um, historical lace and embroidery and then realized that it was excellent inspiration for his company's production. So he donated, um, I don't know how many pieces, maybe hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> um, he donated a lot of um, his pieces to the museum between 1904 and 1908, around there. Um, and they really formed the, the core of their 
historic lace holdings. And I think later they acquired pieces from his nephew, is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, who was also in the family business and also put together a collection. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a lot of the labels in the exhibition, they say Leopold Eclay or John Jacobi, which was his nephew. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So interesting. And so we've talked a lot about anonymity in this conversation thus far. And I was wondering, do we have any information about any specific early modern lace makers, lace producers, people involved in lace? Yeah. So here, actually, I'll plug one of the chapters in our catalog by a curator in Antwerp named Frida Sorber. Um, mm. She just did the other large lace exhibition that happened last year um, at MoMU in Antwerp. And she, in this chapter, she writes about the um, the Plantine family that who lived in Antwerp and they were book printers. I actually have no idea if I'm saying Plantine correctly. I think so. Plantine, yeah. So the Plantine Moritus family, they have, there's a house museum in Antwerp now where you can go visit and see the printing presses that they worked on and their amazing library. And they also, a facet of their business was in the lace trade. So these are not named lace makers necessarily, but two of the teenage daughters of the Plantine family were in charge of the lace arm of the, the family's business. So oh. they were like 12 and 13 years old. And they would commission what? lace from lace makers working at Beguinage in the region or working at home. And the museum's archive includes some of their record books. So these teenage girls, Martine, would write in her, her little lace record book that she went to wherever and commissioned however much bobbin lace from um, a lace maker named, um, there's one, there are several names in the book. You can read them. And so we know the names of these lace makers. Um, I can't remember if one of them is like Tannekin. Um, oh, yeah, Tannekin Vertagen. I have no <laughs> idea if I'm Great name. pronouncing that correctly. But I, she stuck in my head because like, you know, Tannekin yeah. in 1638 yeah. was working and giving her lace to like a 12-year-old who would then take it back to the city and then mail it to Paris to be sold. So there are, I think those records are sort of unique in the world of lace history mm -hmm. um, to have such a, a really rich resource of what was happening in the trade at the time. But you're, you're right that the, the names are largely not there, which is really sad when we have all the objects that survive um, to not know who these women and girls were. Totally. I'll also just add that the, um, I'm sure, you know, Leslie Miller mm -hmm. um, wrote a chapter also, you know, for our book, on yes. between 1690 and 1790 and you know she's primarily a historian of um the silk weaving industry in Lyon um but we asked her to write this chapter on on lace and um it's it's a wonderful chapter with amazing and, she, oh, and, yeah. and you know this is during COVID essentially and she did amazing archival research in spite of the fact that it was COVID because she has such great connections with archivists in Lyon you know so mm -hmm. she sort of knew where to point them or whatever but um so she, I mean she turned up a lot of really great new information and she's basically said like okay i'm not done yet you've like put me on this path you know and i, I want to find out more about and you know lace um you know lace making or the, the industry and um you know the women involved or the men and women involved but um so that's so it's great she's she seems to be very determined to yeah you know get back to leon and look in person at these some of these archives mm -hmm. 
I love that. And both of, I mean, what you both have just said does suggest, and I think that this is totally the case with all sorts of textiles, is that there are further many, many, many more stories to tell and people to discover who are involved with lace making. They're mm -hmm. just hidden, they're hidden in the archive thus far. And it's just a matter of finding them in the margins, which is mm -hmm. really exciting that, you know, we are 400 years out of when some of the lace in this exhibition was made, but we still have so much to know, so much to learn. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of our the nice quote that we have on the wall at the end of the exhibition by um, the former creative director of um, Jacob Schlepfer, which is a, one of the contemporary, the companies in St. Gallen that produces very high-end, um, often experimental textiles. And we had the pleasure of meeting and talking with Martin Leutold, this creative director. And he, he, at the very end of our conversation, he said, you know, we're still pulling from the roots of lace 500 years later, which is, it's just stuck in my head. Mm -hmm. Just such a nice, mm -hmm. a nice image. And that it'll always be an inspiration. Yeah. You know, forever. Something that. That is lovely. That is so, I... that really sums up all of it so well. Yeah, no, it really does. So, it was so poetic, but so, and so yeah. apt. It was mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is like a really good place to end the the lace exhibition section of this interview, I think. <laughs> is there other stuff that you would like to talk about with the exhibition that we haven't gotten to? Um, I guess if we are talking about lace makers, maybe we should plug our student developed digital interactive mm -hmm. about so on the second floor of the exhibition, we have a, a digital interactive um, screen in one of the galleries that was developed by three of our graduate students at BGC. Um, and it's a fictionalized exploration of lace makers um, in various regions in Europe. So we have uh, Lucia, who lives in Venice in 1660, Jean Vieve, who is in Valenciennes in 1750, and then Kate, who is in Bedfordshire, circa 17. 80. 80, 1780. Um, so you can click through the, the little interactive and learn about their um, the families into which they were born, their daily life, um, the type of lace that they would be making, how they learned to make it, the tools and materials they would use, and the sort of broader industry in which they were working. Um, and it's a really, again, a really nice way to sort of bring the human element back to these objects that were made by now unknown hands. That is so lovely and wholesome. I mean, you saw my reaction. My hands were up. <laughs> my yeah. like, so cute, but beyond cute, because it is very cute and wholesome. Like that's so important. And I think like, thank you to those students for doing that work, because I think that is the beginning of how the people can be brought in, brought back to the stories of lace. I love that, little Lucia. <laughs> yeah, Lucia. And actually, it's on our website. And let me just say the students' names so that they are Thank also on. Grace Billingsley, Caroline Ilanovitz Hess, and Isabella Margie were our three wonderful BGC grad students. So the next question, a question that I love to ask also what guests, what is your favorite textile object or objects? You could pick something in the exhibition. You could pick something totally random. I just want to pick your brain. Well, I have, so, all right, I'm, I'm using the plural here because I can't possibly pick <laughs> one thing. Fair um, enough. As, as a, when I was a student at NYU and I, I first saw Bizarre Silk, I thought, what the heck is that? <laughs> True. True. 
And I was kind of obsessed with the Zara Silks. I mean, Zara Silks, you know, they they still hold a very, you know, dear place in my heart. I think they're just, I mean, they're amazing woven objects. Um, so, and we, um, we, when I was at the Met, we bought a Bizarre Silk Mantua from Ginsburg, mm. which is one of their, you know, their star pieces. So yeah. that was yeah. very cool. I was going to say this, um, th uh, in the last, no, it was it last year? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ginsburg catalog, we had this black moire. Yeah. Oh, look at her. Mm. Oh, she was really something. Go through page by page the periodicals and see what they're saying about, you know, moire or the shape of the jacket or mourning. Um, and it, I mean, what's really interesting to me about this is that it could be mourning, but also it could be just be fashionable because black mm. moire was apparently super chic, you know, in the mid 19th century. So you didn't have to be, you know, have a deceased person in your recent past to wear black moire. Mm. Um, so, maybe or maybe she was trendy, hard to say. Yeah. So she could have been trendy. She could have been. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I just really fell in love with that piece. And can I just, can I read a quote from one of the magazines? Please do. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So this is my sense. The sheen and striking undulatory pattern of Mare, which a contemporary French fashion writer evocatively likened to a, to a tear shed by dawn and wiped away by a ray of sun. <laughs> Is displayed to advantage by the voluminous skirt that would have been supported by occasion. So that's how they're writing about, like, oh can you imagine in French how great that is? Yeah. You know. Well, that is, um, there's something so 19th century about that. I, so <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I was like, you know, okay. Mama. Um, and, I, and, I, and then, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was as long as, well, probably eight years ago. I, you know, again, like, who knows, but, um, uh, we had three at Ginsburg, three early 19th century hats dating to about one to about 1806 mm -hmm. and the others, the other two to about 1811, something like that, 12. They were spectacular. They came out of a house, a chateau in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Nobody was paying attention. <laughs> Titi got them, <laughs> <laughs> brought them back. And again, it was like, okay, those are mine. Yes. <laughs> Wow, this episode, <laughs> this episode is not only French literature majors, but also the country of Switzerland, it turns out. Yes, yes. yes. We but love Switzerland. We do love Switzerland. <laughs> but one of these hats had a Paris label in it. One of the ones that dated to about 1811. And it was the label was from this milliner called Herbeau. Hmm. Um, and I thought, all right, I'll just put his name into Gallica. And it was like jackpot. The guy, as I like to say, he was like Stephen Jones of the early 19th century in Paris. I mean, he was milliner to, you know, all the fashionable women. Um, there was a really funny comparison between him. Oh, it was by this, by this gastronome mm -hmm. called Bria Savarin, who said, like, they were at a table in this, you know, overly or whatever, you know, this very fancily prepared pheasant or whatever, something, you know, was brought in for them to eat. And he said, and everybody inspected it as they would, you know, a hat from Herbeau. One, one or two of them still had little tiny pins, you know, securing mm. the, like the very delicate, you know, tool or whatever, really mind blowing. It's a very strong selection of objects you've just chosen.
Yeah, and I would totally. say best of luck to Emma for. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so mine is like maybe an answer that you've heard before on So What, but it's um, Barbara Johnson's album at the VNA. So I'm a sucker for like a sample book or anything that has stuff pinned into the pages, um, particularly textile samples. But um, for me, that it just encompasses like every aspect of what I'm interested in the personal story. Mm-hmm. the textile samples the 80 years or whatever that she spent mm-hmm. collecting it the like the sewist and me interested mm-hmm. in what she made the textiles into um and the fact that she carried it around with her for 80 years mm-hmm. and kept at it's just like such a i can't think about yeah. it for too long because it's like overwhelming <laughs> in how amazing it is um but that's my that's me yeah we, we all i mean the first time like in class when i would show a slide i would say like why weren't there more Johnsons I out know. there? Because it's just, it, it's you such did it a all. <laughs> right. I mean, and when I, when I make my own sewing plans and I have a little piece of paper and I pin a piece of fabric to it, I think about her every time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so it's very moving. Wow. Those are, congrats to you both on really brilliant an- answers. And also the nice through line in both your answers of like the personal touch and like the connection of an individual with, you know, the hat with the pins and Barbara Johnson's album, like the tactility. It's that it's, it's the, the individual that's involved. And I think that what you were just saying about like your own sewing and how, you know, you write stuff down reminds me a lot of the ephemerality of a lot of this lace stuff. Like I bet at some point there was so much knowledge and information about who these lace makers were and, you know, all the tools they were using, all of the answers that we don't have today mm-hmm. obviously existed, existed at one point, but it just speaks to the ephemerality of not necessarily lace because there is a lot of it that survives, but the world of stuff around it, of people, of tools, of their working environment. There's so mm-hmm. much that um, we don't know and that I hope is like by chance in an archive somewhere. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, now I was just thinking about Mr. Lefebure, who had a, mm-hmm. you know, who was a um, manufacturer, if that's the mm-hmm. right word, um, mm-hmm. of lace um, in in France in the 19th century, of handmade lace, who had these, you know, very organized workshops or ateliers. And it, I mean, presume, well, I don't know if there were, would have been records, you know, when he was in business of the names of the lace makers right. to whom they mm-hmm. contracted. Right. It can't, it can't just be Martine Plantine writing things down. Like there have to be, they should be everywhere. Right. (laughs) Everywhere. Oh, I hope they are somewhere. I, I tend to think that um, public engagement and like exhibitions, like what you've just done will inspire and be the impetus for a lot more research and deep diving into the people who made the objects and Mm -hmm. finding the stuff that's, tucked deep into an archive right or look in your attic everyone <laughs> yeah. your, your grandmother's stuff you Let live in Bedfordshire. go to your attic email me <laughs> do you live in bedfordshire go to your attic email me <laughs> if you have yes so at listeners there are many of you at this point if you know anything about lace it's time to right. email Emma. Yeah. let me know and i'll pass on her email what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Now that we've talked about the past, 
Let's go to the present. <laughs> Great question. So I will here plug um, a, a BGC doctoral student, um, Kate Seculis. Uh, she has established um, a mending session that happens here once a month. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, it's great. When it's people wonderful. can come and bring whatever they have. And she shows up with bits of fabric and needles and okay. thread. And, you know, I mean, she's, she's such an advocate for this kind of work, this kind of needlework, you know, mending. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, and I think, I mean, it's really caught on here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very popular. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, have a little mend and chat. It's great. Yeah. And I think I love that. It, you also, and I, I think, I mean, I experienced the same, the one Sunday that I spent, you know, quite a bit of time in the, in the lace maker studio is, is the sense of community mm -hmm. among mm. me. And I will say in the case of the, well, you know, mostly women, but, um, you know, occasionally there are <laughs> guys who show up, um, but certainly the sense of community among the people who were there. Mm -hmm. and how yeah you just you're you're doing and you're talking and you're yeah it it's really wonderful um and I mean as you probably know with Kate I mean she's she's operating on you know the needle and thread level but also you know like the world needs mending so right. it has these larger applications I would lean more toward the like solitude COVID answer um, which for me is how I got back into, I guess, technically not needlework, but if you count the needle on a sewing machine, I always, I count everything's a oh, needle. Great. Yeah. As like a way to quiet all of the chaos that was going on in my head mm. and, and outside. So, um, and not to be dramatic, but sewing has changed my life <laughs> getting back. You know, I, I said, oh, I, learned when I was young and I was not necessarily into it. I don't think I was patient enough, but it's, legitimately changed my life and the way that I look at everything. And I, I'm pretty sure I've like hassled everyone at BGC <laughs> to learn to sew with me. <laughs> we're, we're like planning sewing days coming up, but I'm pretty sure I say that sentence, like sewing has changed my life multiple times a week. Everyone's probably tired of hearing it, but I don't care. <laughs> no, it's fabulous wardrobe. I'm working on it. Now I have more time now that the lace exhibition is up. True. Also, you're, that might be a dramatic sentence. I don't think so because I speak like that. As well. but also, you could not say a more perfect sentence for this podcast. So thank you. Good. You are out here preaching the gospel of sewing in the way that I'm out here preaching the gospel of Twixt Art and Nature PDF. So <laughs> we all have our own. <laughs> okay. Finally, the last question: How can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you would like to promote? So here I would like to promote one of our favorite aspects of the exhibition, which is what we're calling our Lacemaker Studio, which is on the fourth floor of BGC's gallery building. It's a collaboration with Brooklyn Lace Guild, where every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 1 to 5 p.m., visitors can finish their time in the exhibition galleries by walking up the stairs and spending time with lacemakers at work. Um, on any given day, there are between three and six lace makers from the Brooklyn Lace Guild working on various projects and different types of lace making. Um, and they are super happy to chat and share information about how they got into lace making, their yeah. tools. Um, and a lot of them are teachers too. So they're really wonderful at explaining very clearly what they're doing. Um, another way to really illuminate this 
very complex process of making these lace objects. And I last weekend had the pleasure of spending several hours sitting um, actually while Kate Seculis was doing a mending event. Um, and like Michelle said, the environment is just like so warm and open and we were laughing and chatting and um, having visitors stream in and look interested at first and then get completely sucked into whatever Elena was making on her bob and lace pillow is like such a wonderful thing to see people mm -hmm. get really excited about the the process and then I hope go back downstairs and look at everything with renewed interest mm -hmm. again so please come on a weekend it's really wonderful yes if you are in New York Get yourself not only to the exhibition, but get yourself to the exhibition on the weekend. Yes. See the lace makers in action. Yeah. Um, you also have an exhibition book. Is yes, that we correct? Do. Tell me more. If yes, you it's, thank you. It's a 16 chapter exhibition catalog. 432 pages. <laughs> yes. Um goes much deeper than the wall text in the exhibition ever could. Um, we have 16, no. 18 contributors writing about topics covered in the exhibition and it's beautifully illustrated with new photography of the textile museum exhibition objects and um, again we hope it'll open up new avenues of lace research and inspire even more mm. 16 chapter books <laughs> and there are um, one small portion of the um, Habsburg gallery looks at uh the consumption of lace or addresses the consumption of lace in the spanish americas mm. the catalog we essentially there's a, a section of mm -hmm. comprising three chapters um up, about that specifically mm -hmm. um which i i know was um of great interest to people who asked about the catalog as it was in progress and also you know since it's been published mm -hmm. because there's not that much out there um know on that topic and then i would say i mean two other chapters that don't really we don't really cover in the exhibition focuses on arthur blackburn mm -hmm. and, um, and a chapter by emily zilber on uh the needle lace school that was set up in new york um in the i don't remember you know exactly the year but the early years of the early 20th century early 20th century for um, Italian immigrant women, you know, in conjunction with the Risorgimento that was going on in Italy and the whole lace revival in Italy. And so this, you know, reciprocal relationship between Italy and New York um, in terms of lace making and that this is, you know, part of Italian heritage and that, um, you know, this is transported to New York. Um, yes. So there was school um, that was active for maybe about tw 20 years, a bit less, um, in, in which young women were taught to make mm -hmm. lace in the style of, mm -hmm. you know, the early material. That is so interesting. I bought the book and I schlepped it in my carry-on bag from New York to London. And wow. it's totally worth it. I'm impressed. <laughs> so, so what, <laughs> listeners, if I could do it, so can you. It is, it's so brilliant. And it's like the biggest lace book since Santina Levy's Lace of History, right? Yes. Yeah. Huge, immense, yeah. groundbreaking, game-changing. Well, I mentioned it earlier, but the exhibition website, 
after the exhibition closes in January, it will be the lasting record of what was up in the gallery. So right now we have all of the wall texts that are in the gallery posted on the website, and eventually it'll be a true snapshot of the exhibition so that hopefully we won't have to wait 40 years until the next one, but it'll hopefully hold over all the lace people until then. <laughs> and so we'll have um, videos of events organized around the exhibition. We have really wonderful high-res photos of some of the objects that you can zoom in on much closer than you could in the gallery. Um, and some audio features that we have in the gallery and um, essentially everything developed by BGC in collaboration with Threads of Power. That is glorious. And thank you for your work to make this exhibition accessible to people who can't get to New York. We love. Right. And if you if you can't come to New York, email me and we can give you a virtual tour. We really we're trying our very, very best to share this with as many people as possible before January 1st. So really just email me and we can. Yeah, we, we've done spread the gospel already. Zoom. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not the same, of course, but we we can make do. That is awesome. So listeners, take note, get yourself a virtual tour, make it happen. Michelle and Emma, thank you so much for this. I've learned so much. I always do is say the word so. I'm trying to come up with another word. Very, I, thank you very much. I've learned so much. Um, I really knew nothing or very little about lace before coming into the exhibition. And I learned so much, but also I just had never seen that many pieces of lace together in one place before. And it really got me thinking about the world of lace production and those who were making it and what their lives would have been like and how the lace factored into people's surroundings and their own dress. So thank you for the exhibition. Thank you for doing this interview. Thanks for making the exhibition accessible. <laughs> Thanks for everything. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. It's a thank pleasure. you, Isabella. Hello, me again. Hi. That was such a fun interview. Thank you very, very much to Michelle Major and Emma Cormack for a brilliant interview. The theme of anonymity came up a lot in our conversation, thanks to me just constantly bringing it up, and it is a theme that I want to end this episode with, because it's something I think about a lot in the study of textiles and think it's absolutely fascinating. Anonymity is one of the blessings and curses of studying textiles, and needlework specifically. For every woman or girl, or less often a man, whose name is attached to an item of historical needlework, there are hundreds and thousands of individuals who stitched whose names we don't know. It's frustrating, that lack of answers, but it's also exciting. That anonymity leaves room for creative thinking, like in the instance of the digital interactive the BGC grad students created for the exhibition. And it also means that there is a lot of opportunity to find people tucked in the archives, or in an attic, or deep inside museum storage. I have to have faith that there are more names of lace makers out there. We just have to find them. And now I gotta remind you about the facts why we are here today. It's the exhibition Threads of Power, so if you are in New York, make sure to get yourself to the BGC to see the exhibition before it closes on January 1st. If you're not in New York City, you can check out the virtual exhibition at the link I'm including across all these So What social media pages. And also, get the absolutely massive exhibition catalog. It's huge. It's so worth it, I promise. Oh my god, we love lace! And now it's time to bring this episode to a close. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I will actually be back next week with more content with another episode. Can you believe? 
three episodes in three weeks. That's wild. But we're ending 2022 with a bang. Anyway, that is it for now. So I will say, now go out and stitch some stories and think about how we're still pulling from the roots of lace. That quote that Michelle mentioned earlier, which I think is just perfect. We're still pulling from the roots of lace. Bye. Thank you.